It's week 34 of 2018, and on TechNado today, we have a lot of privacy and personal information stories to get to. We've also got a story about a fight in a convenience store in Florida, which we promise ties back to computers somehow. That's all coming up on TechNado, starting right now. Hello, welcome to TechNado. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, joined, as always, by Mr. Don Pizzette. Don, how are you doing today? I am doing well, ready to jump in and tackle the tech news of the week. Yeah, and it's been a few weeks since we've just really gotten down to a bunch of tech news articles. Uh, we've had a lot of great interviews, some some shows we attended recently, like B-Sides. Uh, but to, to just get back down to our roots and, and talk about... Uh, the week that was, and and boy, oh boy, there was a lot of different articles this week that we had to, to wade through. Yeah, and uh, you know, I feel like uh, you know we're Bon Jovi now. We're going back to our roots. We're sure. going to put out that album. Uh, we have uh, a, a number of stuff that there's a lot of security stuff going on right now, but it's not the normal gloom and doom that we have. Yeah. Most of it's actually kind of humorous uh, because right now people are in a privacy panic. There's a good headline here, a lot of P words, mm-hmm. but... Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody is finally starting to wake up and realize, boy, I don't want every company out there to have all of my personal information. Uh, unfortunately, people are also realizing that it's too late. <laughs> that companies already have that information. What, do you think they're realizing that because they're like, boy, I don't want uh, the EU to take all of my money uh, with a GDPR violation? Well, so that, that's what companies are thinking, yeah, right? But yeah. for users, like regular people, yeah. when you've already handed over all your data to these corporations... It's already done. Like Facebook knows May so much. May I have much. it back, please? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Facebook will give it back to you. Well, they will, but, but they, they still keep have it. A copy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna save that. All right. So let's uh, let's jump into our first article, which comes from um, a, a news source that I think is new to our yeah. Our I'm not podcast. familiar with this one. I I drop news, and uh, and there were some stories this week coming out about how uh, when you turn off your location data on Android, that it's actually still sending things back to Google. And so um, this article kind of digs uh, deeper into that and looks at uh, Android collects and shares 10 times more personal user data than iOS, which is funny to me because I think of Android as the as the operating system that more IT professionals and, and security professionals use. Well, you have to remember the origin of Android, mm-hmm. right? It's from Google. And it was designed to where Google could actually be involved in each of your communications oh, to, better, involved. to better serve up advertisements. <laughs> yeah. Nothing is how they yeah. function. Uh, Apple, they, you know, Apple flirted with launching an ad platform at one point, but it, it didn't work out. Uh, but for them, their primary concern is to sell you more hardware, right? That's where they make their money. So the two companies have very different backgrounds. And when Google, you know, Google actually didn't create Android, they acquired it. And their whole goal there was to release it for free. Anybody could use it because they would be able to collect data on the back end. So that platform is built around the, uh, the idea of collecting data. So I'm not surprised to find out that they're collecting information. But the trick here is it's hard to figure out exactly how much they are collecting. That if you turned off location reporting, it stopped reporting your GPS data. But you can identify location a number of different ways by like what Wi-Fi networks you're able to see and, and your, your cell tower that you're connected to and other things. So there's a ton of other ways to identify location, and Google was still doing that. So they were being really literal when they said, turn off location reporting, speaking of, of your GPS, but not all these other places. So there's actually a class action lawsuit going against them now. That's always entertaining. Uh, basically, what will happen here is 
five years from now, they'll lose the suit. Some attorneys will get a few million dollars. Everyone else will get a uh, coupon for one free Google search, and that'll be the end of the class action lawsuit. But at least there's awareness that's out there, and a lot of people will get to see, wait a minute, when I have a phone like this, I am being tracked. That data is being given out. And unfortunately, as of right now, even if Google wasn't tracking it, the cell phone carriers are. And with the end of net neutrality and a few of the other rules that are out there, the cell phone carriers can sell your usage data. There's nothing nothing barring them from doing that. And that means that, uh, you know, basically you're, you just have to accept being tracked or stop using electronic devices. Yeah, it's the easiest way. Yeah. Just, uh, you yeah, know, that'll you put us the burner out of phones and you, you break <laughs> the, um, the flip phones right in half there. And that's the quickest way to do it. I, I will point out, though, because of the, the lowercase i, um, on this website's uh, header, iDrop News, it's probably a little um, skewed towards being pro uh, pro Apple there. So um, they're, I mean, they're still putting in facts, but you know, obviously they're putting sure. their spin on it. I think they say the location data is, is sent to Google uh, 340 times in a single 24-hour period on a Android device uh, running Chrome in the background. Uh, so yeah, that's that's quite a bit. Well, you know, if you think about running Chrome, every time you visit a website that requests mm -hmm. your location, so it, that would be data being sent to that website, not necessarily to Google. Uh, it, it depends on on how they break that down. That seems pretty high, but if you have an iPhone and you have, uh, what is it, Find My Friends turned mm -hmm. on, you're phoning your location home to Apple Constantly. quite a bit, yeah. right? Yeah. And probably more than 340 times a day. Yeah. So I, I, I imagine it does vary largely based on what services you have turned on, but... Hey, when you take on an electronic device like that, it's it's kind of your burden to go in and learn the software and and learn what should be on and what should be off. And you do make acceptable uh, compromises and say, sure. you know, what, I'm willing to share that data with Google because I get a better search experience. Yeah, definitely. Well, I could never just get rid of my phone like that because I I take so many selfies all the time, <laughs> uh, and which is why this next story frightened me so much over on Motherboard. Uh, spyware company leaves terabytes of selfies, text messages, and location data exposed online. So we just talked about all that data that, that exists out there, but uh, how is it that, that they left this just open for anyone? All right, so normally when we hear the term spyware, we think of like malware that's installed unwillingly, right? But in this case, the company is called SpyPhone, um, with an F, not a PH. Uh, so SpyPhone. And what they do is they sell software for companies and parents to be able to load on their employees' or children's phones to be able to track everything that was done on the device. So, uh, like here in the state of Florida, if you issue a company phone, that is a company device, and they're allowed to monitor and track the communications on it. Uh, if you're a parent and you give your child a device, you are allowed to track communications on it. So that's what this software does. Uh, from that angle, you could say that it's legitimate software, not not uh, like you know, a virus on the Internet type thing. But... They collect data, and they store it in a dashboard that's then exposed to the parent or the company so they can log in and pull up, you know, give me the text message history, give me the location history, and all that. Well, like many companies, they're using cloud infrastructure, and they were using, I believe these were Amazon yeah, S3 so buckets. Amazon S3, yep. And we've reported on Amazon S3 buckets numerous times on the shows where many companies are configuring those buckets and setting the permissions to public. And just assuming that nobody will find the S3 bucket, that uh, if somebody were to find it, they'd have read access to the whole thing because it's public. But if they don't know it's there, they obviously won't find it, right? Well, that's wrong. There's plenty of search engines like Shodan out there that will let you search and find these unprotected S3 buckets. And in this case, 
the S3 buckets contained everything from these phones that were being monitored, which included selfies, text messages, location data, everything in there. Now, it was a security researcher that found it. They reported it to the company, and the company has since protected it. But if a malicious person had found it, imagine what they could find. I mean, it's kind of like, do you remember the fappening? I do. Right? Well, that was targeted to celebrities. So here, this was just regular people. They could collect all that information. That was what? That was iCloud, right? Yeah, that was okay. iCloud in that case, which this is, is very similar, right? Yeah. You're storing your, your all the pictures you take, your text messages are all being reported back to this company. So if somebody gets that, it's, it's good blackmail material. Uh, it's, well, what scares me about this, the, a lot of the people that might use the software like this are parents. So this is kids' uh, photos. Well, that's true, yeah. You know, text messages, things like that. So that's that's frightening in another way from kidnapping to to God knows what. So. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's frightening. And, and you mentioned, well, what if someone malicious had found this? We don't know that someone didn't, and and you know hasn't released yet, or you know if if someone uh, professional found it, someone yeah. on, on the dark side. Sadly, if well. a if a company is not capable of even putting permissions on the bucket, you know they're not tracking logs, they're not <laughs> keeping that data, and even if they were, they probably aren't very effective at, at parsing through it to find out what's legitimate, and what's not. So it is a, a word of caution that when you when you are sharing data. Uh, in this day and age, you pretty much have to share data. You need to pick and choose the companies that you trust with that data. And just because they have an app in the App Store doesn't mean that they're security wizards or that they're protecting your data the way that we intend. Um, it is, it's, it's the Wild West out there. And uh, unfortunately, your, uh, your personal information is the, the treasure, the, the black gold, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is awesome. There's a good analogy here. I'm, I'm just missing it. You know, something like about the oil rush and your personal information is black gold. Texas tea. Yeah, I can't make this work. Just going yeah. February, is there a cement there. pond? Yeah. And <laughs> All right. I'll work on my analogy. We'll have that for next yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, work on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, hopefully that's the last we hear of that story, um, that, that no one has actually got that, that data. Uh, all right, our next article is from... What we're assuming is Dijon. Oh, Dijan. So this one actually came from Hacker News. This was okay. was tearing it up, but uh, the source was. Um, I'm I'm going to go with Dijon Marketing let's, so let's I can go make with my uh, yeah. my Grey Poupon joke. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll set you back <laughs> up again. Then I'll, this next uh, story comes from Dijon Marketing. Uh, how I recorded user behavior on my competitor's website. So this is kind of a a how to that they put together on how they did some competitive research, which. Anyone who's got a website and, and has competitors, this is extremely valuable information. All right. So the reason I really wanted to throw this one is I thought of you when I saw this I article because uh, Peter has a, a marketing background. And uh, and actually, you, you wrote a book on marketing, didn't you? I did. I didn't want to bring it up. But <laughs> thank you. It is available on Amazon. Uh, just search Peter Van Rysdam. And it's uh, one of the top million uh, books. If you want to learn all the uh, fundamentals of Web 2.0 marketing. Yeah, I think it's from 2010, right so <laughs> a it's uh, yeah, a little bit dated there. But uh, you know, we can, it, you know, at our next meetup, we should do signed copies. Oh, we should. It should be, Definitely. Be should. Get rid of those from so, the garage. So this was a, uh, a marketing guy, though, or a company. I, I don't know if it's more than one person, but uh, he came up with a really inventive idea. Marketers will oftentimes do heat maps of their sites to figure out how long does it take users to scroll through? Where do they click? Are they even looking at particular parts of the page and, and really learn how their page works? Well, if you knew that about your competitors, you could build your own site to like make up for every inadequacy of your competitors' websites, and you would be far more likely to win out in some kind of head-to-head competition with your competitors. So he came up with a neat idea, which um, uh, violates most of Google's terms of service and, and violates most 
morals and ethics yeah, as well. So definitely write an article about it <laughs> and, and put it out there on the internet. Which is exactly what he yeah. did, and it was why it was uh, moving up the, the Hacker News stuff. It's probably still in the top 10 articles on yeah. Hacker News right now. Uh, but basically what he did is he said, look, I, when people come from Google, right, they, they do a Google search, they find my page, they click on the link, and they come to me, right, that he had JavaScript on his site so that when you hit the back button, Instead of actually going back to the search results, the JavaScript would intercept the back button and instead display a page on his site that was the scraped Google search results. He scraped them himself that had all the competitor links. And he changed the links so that instead of actually going to the competitor's site, you were going to his version of the competitor's website, which he scraped as well. Is it like the competitor's site in an iframe, or he actually He actually created a complete okay. clone, uh, and that way he had to create a clone because that way he could use his own SSL certificate on it. And that's what he was talking about in the article, is that most people just look to see if there's a green lock. They don't actually verify if the URL matches. And if they click on a link in Google, they assume they're going to the real site. And when they look at Google search results, they assume it's Google. So there's like a whole lot of assumptions that people do here that aren't necessarily accurate. And so by doing that, you would hit the back button, and you would think you were looking at Google search results. You were actually looking at his. And then when you would click on the link, it would take you to his version of the competitor's website. And he, I don't know, he might have done an iframe to mask it behind there, but I think he just scraped it. And from there, he could track how long it took you to scroll down, where you clicked, what you were doing, and he could learn all about how people were interacting with his competitor's uh, websites. Google has since jumped in and like delisted all his stuff in Google, so he's, uh, he's not getting a very warm reception about it. But it really did highlight the fact that when you hit the back button on your browser, you're not always going back to the site that you came in on. It can be intercepted with JavaScript and overridden and made to do other things. Uh, there's also the thing that just because a page looks like Google or looks like another site doesn't mean it actually is. And when you see that green lock up top, that's just saying that the current URL you're on has been validated. It doesn't mean the current URL you're on is the one you intended it to be. So you always need to double check and verify that but most users don't. And that's what this guy was highlighting. So it was really neat uh, for a marketer, this type of information is worth its weight in gold. For a security professional, it should make you cringe and say, yeah. man, I, how are we supposed to educate end users to all this stuff? It's just too much too much to ask. Yeah, this is one of those where, wow, it's interesting to read and, and see uh, wh what things uh, he was able to learn from this, but at the same time, do not replicate this. This is, uh, you're setting yourself up for, um, I think a lot of uh, potential uh, legal exposure in terms of, you know, any of the competitors could could probably uh, have a, a lawsuit here. Oh, absolutely. Um, Google as well. But I mean, I've, I've got to think. Yeah, if you're stealing the the scraping the page from someone else, here. identity theft, wire yeah. fraud, you could probably go for all of those. Um, yeah, we'll we'll see where that goes. But it, it is a uh, kind of a warning. Well, Dan is down in Australia, so uh, we'll see if we can extradite him. Uh, here? You know, that's probably worse for him. Australia has much more aggressive laws on this stuff than uh, than we do. So, well, it's a good thing he, uh, he documented everything that he did there <laughs> for, for posterity's sake. That won't come back. Um, all right, <laughs> let, let's move over now to bleepingcomputer.com. Uh, cloud product accidentally exposes users' uh, TLS certificate private keys. That, do that doesn't sound good. Yeah, this is Pri pretty bad. Private, this is, is bad. Yeah. Um, when you use SSL or TLS, you're encrypting all the web traffic to and from your server. And 
you should be the only one with the private key. The visitor on your site is using your public key to be able to encrypt and, and access the site. Well, if somebody gets a hold of your private key, they're able to decrypt any encrypted communications that had occurred in the past, and they're able to man in the middle any future communications as well as masquerade as your site. It's a real problem. You, you've got to protect your private key. Well, in this case, a researcher found that if you were running a server using uh, the software package called Traffic, and what Traffic does is it's, uh, it's kind of like um, cPanel, where uh, it's a web interface for administrators to be able to control their servers. And there was a flaw in cPanel, which uh, they, they, he reported this responsibly. A CVE was created, and Traffic put a patch out for this. Uh, but basically, if it wasn't patched, you could browse to the site and hit its API. And... Uh, and I'll, actually, I need to clarify that patch bit, but let me go back into the API. You could hit its API, and you could run various queries against the API, one of which would return the private key for the site uh, and not require any crazy authentication. It, it would just turn it over to you. And what happened here is the, the creators of the traffic software, they never expected anyone to expose the management interface to the Internet. It's not supposed to be publicly available, so that's problem one. And problem two, they didn't expect most people to expose the API that way either. In fact, that access is disabled by default. But you could turn it on, and then you were able to be compromised. The researcher who found this did a, uh, a quick Shodan script, and it's in the article somewhere. I think he found something like 2,400 servers. Uh, oh, 2,700. 2,700 servers that had uh, management instances that were open like this. That's a ton. So an update has been released, but the update doesn't actually stop the problem. What the update does is it says if somebody goes to open up their API this way, it gives them a warning message. It says, warning, did you know that this could potentially expose your private keys? Don't do this. Yeah. Click but here to continue. You can click here to continue. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, uh, so this is going to be a problem. Um, in my opinion, not really the responsible... Uh, way to solve it by traffic. I probably wouldn't use traffic software uh, based on on this. Um, you shouldn't be able to query the private key of a server via the network. Like it's not. I can't think of a use case scenario where that makes sense. Uh, it just boggles my mind. So uh, it is probably software that's focused more on convenience than it is on security, which is not something you want to use for your management network. But also the fault here are with the managers or the the sysadmins. They shouldn't be exposing the management interface to the internet either. So all big problems. If you run traffic, it's a good idea to get in there and check and make sure that you don't have uh, your API opened up. Uh, that is certainly a bad uh, a bad idea. The option, let's see, the option's in here somewhere. They mentioned what it's actually called. But, uh, uh, but basically, if you turn on that API, the dashboard API, you are putting yourself at risk. It's a good idea to turn that off and don't expose it to the internet. I wouldn't trust anyone that spells traffic that way anyway. So I uh, very artsy. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, let's go over to our next article here. This one is from Georgia Tech, and it's on Georgia Tech's uh, own blog or, or news page here. Um, Georgia Tech creates a cybersecurity master's degree online for less than $10,000. So we're kind of seeing um, the, the educational institutions start to catch up in terms of uh, what types of degrees people are, are looking for out in the field and... Um, and what types of, of degrees are actually setting you up for the jobs that, that exist out there? Yeah, you know, Georgia Tech made headlines years ago when they launched an online CIS degree uh, where you could enroll through this and, and you could get a master's in CIS, which was great for people that were 
were looking to get into IT but couldn't couldn't go full time to school. So you could you could take online courses and take it at your own pace, and and it was actually fairly reasonably priced. Well, what's new here is it's a cybersecurity, a, a master's. Uh, let's see, what's it officially called? It's a um, somewhere here, online master of science in cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is a big, growing job field. There's a lot of opportunity there. If you're just coming out of college and you want to get a job in IT, cybersecurity is one of the ones that's the easiest to get a job in. That and development. Those are the two that are growing really, really fast. Well, the cool thing here, it's a master's degree. Uh, it's 32 credit hours, and they charge $300 a credit hour. So if you work that out, it ends up being just shy of $10,000. So a, a master's degree for $10,000, that's... Yeah. That's pretty reasonable. And this is an accredited college, so you can do uh, federal student loans, uh, which is a whole other national debate that we have here with being saddled with student loan debt. But here, at least it's ten grand, uh, and you can get in and you can get uh, a degree. So for people who don't have a lot of experience but they want to get into the career field, here's a way to actually generate something on your resume that is uh, respected and uh, and useful in the industry. Yeah, and, and Georgia Tech, a very uh, well-respected uh institution there of higher learning and uh, specifically in engineering and and, uh, and computer science and those kinds of things. So that's that's pretty good. But it doesn't matter. Uh, because of our next story over at uh, CNBC.com, Google, Apple, and 13 other companies that no longer require employees to have a college degree. So people are, are going pro now right from high school, I guess. You know, I had a uh, an off-the-record conversation with a, a CEO of a large organization a few weeks ago, uh, and what he was telling me was, uh, he gets really frustrated by some of the STEM movements that are out there because it's telling people, hey, if you want to get into IT, you need to go and get a math degree or you know something like that. And people get turned off and they don't, they don't want to do that. They don't want to move into the field. And what he was saying was that a lot of jobs that are out there don't really benefit from the college degree. And he actually used security as an example, which is, is kind of funny, um, that if you're going into IT management, yes, the, the degrees are absolutely useful. You certainly need it. If you're learning programming and developing languages, there's college degrees that will teach you great skills and you can get in there. But when you're working in the world of cybersecurity as like a pen tester, what what are you going to learn in college that's directly applicable? It's, it's too much fundamentals and theory, right? Uh, that foundational knowledge is a lot better suited in the dev world and the management world. So it's a, a changing kind of event. So Google, Apple, and some of the other uh, larger organizations have started reacting to that and saying, you know, we required degrees before for a lot of our positions, but now we should be accepting of people that don't, but that have maybe real-world experience or experience from other means like trade schools and, and other areas, uh, and even like IT certifications like what we do. So it's neat to see that. It doesn't mean that degrees are worthless, though, and a lot of people who are in HR, they're doing hiring, they're still going to look for that degree on a resume, uh, even if it's not required. It still gives you that that leg up. I've had a lot of people ask me over the years, what's better, certification or a degree? And my answer is always both. If you can do both, that sets you up the best. Your degree shows that you've got the fundamentals and theory to, to, to know a technology, and then your certification shows that you actually know specific technologies. They go hand in hand. Do both if you can. But in today's world, if you're going to jump into certain job fields, it's starting to, to move over more towards either certifications or just real-world experience. And you can learn what you need, get in there and do the job, and the degree isn't as required as it used to be. Yeah, and I, I will say that a little bit of this article is misleading to me because it, it talks about uh, 
Apple, Google, and 13 other companies. Well, you know, we're listing things like Whole Foods, and it's saying current openings, cashier, bakery team member. Uh, I don't think those required college degrees in the past. <laughs> um, bar- barista at Starbucks. Um, I don't know. But uh, but obviously then there are, are other, uh, uh, you know, corporate jobs at, at these uh, these businesses as well, like Home Depot's listing uh, customer service, sales, department supervisor, things like that, that that may have required them in the past. So, And I, I'll bet uh, if you're a store manager or an accountant or something, they still do require that degree. So it's yeah. certainly going to vary by position. Interesting. Uh, all right. Well, let's shift gears a little bit now. We've got some uh, mobile news to get to. Uh, Huawei, which I... I've, am I saying that right, finally? Yeah, it's Huawei. Okay, because I remember you had to teach me that before we went to, to CES, because I was like, <laughs> Huawei. Um, <laughs> Huawei tried to pass off a DSLR photo as a smartphone selfie uh, in a new ad. So you're looking at the commercial going, well, that's a great-looking picture. Well, that's because it was taken uh, via DSLR. And to me, the funny thing about this article is not just that, that they were caught doing this, but how they were caught. It turns out the the model from the uh, from the commercial posted some behind-the-scenes photos to her Instagram to show that she was doing this great commercial. And there's a DSLR camera <laughs> sitting there facing her. So, um, you know, not just people being uh, very astute and looking at the photo and being able to figure that out. So... Uh, but this isn't the first time something like this has happened. No, it's happened several times over the years. Uh, I remember Microsoft had some like video game screenshots or pre-release screenshots that had been run through Photoshop, uh, and they had added um, what's that effect called when a camera is pointed at the sun and you see those rings? Uh, oh, the, the, not the lens flare, but is it's it a flare. lens flare? Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 the lens flare. So they had added a lens flare effect with Adobe Photoshop, making it look like the Xbox could do it and, yeah. and things. So they went under heat for that. A lot of times it turns up in the metadata of the file, but companies have wised up to that now, and they go in and they remove location data and other metadata from the images. It becomes harder to tell. It's a really good photo, and... If you've seen like uh, Google's portrait mode yeah. or some of the iPhone photos that come out yeah. these days, they look really good. And if you take the time to frame them up and stuff, you can get DSLR quality S- photos. Scroll down on this. You've got the Instagram post here in a second. <laughs> there it is. Oh, so you can right see there. that's the same photo, obviously, uh, you know, taken from the side can, there. And you can see his hand. His hand. It doesn't uh, look like he's holding no, anything. That's, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty big uh, smartphone that he's got on that tripod there. But um, yeah, this was I think over in Egypt um, that that this happened. And it says it's not even the first time that Huawei was uh, was caught. But um, they're they're catching some heat um, for that one. And that's not the only heat they're getting uh, right now. This one, this next one coming from uh, from the Australian government. Uh, Australia is banning Huawei. God, I can't even. That company and ZTE from supplying technology for its 5G network, and I guess they didn't mention them by name, but just said people that are are uh, security risks from external yeah, governments. This is what we're going through here in the U.S., and so a lot of foreign companies are getting beaten up over this, uh, where governments are becoming more paranoid. Uh, they don't want election tampering and all that other stuff, and so they're starting to look at their infrastructure and saying. We don't want infrastructure that could potentially be under the control of another government. And and companies like Huawei and ZTE, we don't we don't have documentation that says Huawei is selling out all our data to the Chinese government. But there's that possibility that the Chinese government could step in and say, Huawei, you need to give us all your data. And what are they gonna do? They're they're a Chinese company, it's a Chinese government, they're they're going to turn it over. You could point fingers right back at the U.S. the oh, same yeah. way. If you're a U.S. company and the U.S. government comes in and says, we've got a warrant for this data, 
you've got to turn it over. I mean, you could fight it in court, I suppose. Uh, in some countries, you can't fight it in court. But either way, the government will ultimately win and get that data. So if you are outside of the U.S., you probably don't want to use U.S. companies uh, for, for your infrastructure. If you're outside of China, you probably don't want to use China. And, and Huawei uh, and ZTE, companies like this, they are, they're taking the brunt of that political battle. But it all goes back to collecting information and how our data is stored. This is stuff that GDPR is supposed to fix uh, and, and other types of regulations. So we'll, we'll see where it all goes. In the meantime, you know, Huawei, they, they haven't done well here in the U.S., Sounds like they're about to not do so well in Australia. As long as they stay strong in their Asian markets, they'll be fine. But this type of stuff can can end a company. It can really make life hard. Well, I think it's just the way they spell their name has made it tough. But um, but honestly, I think uh, you know there are issues with companies in the United States or uh, in Europe like this. But I think it's a little more uh, worrisome for countries like like China. Uh, countries like Russia, where the relationship between the government and and uh, and the business community is a little bit different. I mean, this this kind of reminds me of like Kaspersky uh, oh, yeah. that we were talking yeah. about a year or so ago. Um, in terms of uh, uh, you know the the meetings that or the congressional hearings and things. Yeah, that we're talking it, about. here in the U.S., uh, so we've already uh, we've already passed rules that said if you are a U.S. government employee, you're not allowed to use. Uh, Kaspersky antivirus or cell phones from these foreign manufacturers. They're not being given government contracts or not allowing their, their technology to come in. So we're already doing this. Now it looks like other countries are jumping on board. It's really going to make things interesting. Like what what's Australia going to do? Are they going to start implementing their own homegrown technology? Maybe it'll create more competition. But if we're not allowing it to cross our borders, then it's not really competition. And you'll end up with countries each having their own separate networks, which will make interna- international travel a nightmare. We'll, we'll see where that ends up. I'm assuming they're going back to do boomerang technology. Didgeridoo. Didgeridoo. Oh, yeah. Yep. It carries. It's got more bandwidth the, yeah, than a traditional true. boomerang. That's true. <laughs> uh, all right. We'll look forward to the, the hate mail from our, our friends in Australia, because we do have a lot of that. <laughs> uh, all right. Next, uh, speaking of state-sponsored hacking, uh, over on the New York Times, uh, new Russian hacking targeted Republican groups uh, in the U.S., uh, according to Microsoft. So um, I guess, you know, with all the, the news about this stuff now, there's extra vigilance and, and people are actually looking for this stuff as we uh, gear up towards the midterm elections in, I think, like 10 weeks. Yeah, you know, we've been reporting on election tampering. Uh, when I say we, I mean just collectively all the media has been reporting on election tampering nonstop since the two th- since the last election, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. just been going on and on and on. Um, this is not talking about the old tampering. This is talking about current, yesterday. As of yesterday, tampering is happening. Uh, Microsoft's actually been stepping in and trying to stop some of these communications, so many of them are not effective. But the real challenge here is that, at least in the U.S., it's not like we have one big election system. There's all of these different election systems that vary from state to state to state. Down to county to county or city to city even. It it can get that granular. And so you may find where, where one state's results are compromised and other states are fine. And it's it's just something we need to do a better job with. And, and you know, election tampering has been around a long, long time where uh, dead people have been voting for <laughs> hundreds of years, yeah. at least here in the U.S. So it's not like this is the Internet's fault, yeah. but it's certainly making it easier. Uh, and so we are starting to see a heck of a lot more of that going on. Which is, you know, disheartening because I, I was pretty sure Putin pinky swore uh, at the summit that he would not do this. Hey, you know, um, I mean, and but, if you 
can't trust the president of a nation, who can you trust? You can't trust a former KJ, uh, KGB agent. <laughs> uh, I don't know who, who you can trust anymore. Uh, and and uh, kind of more on this story, but a, a little bit of a, a different side here. Um, this one over on TechCrunch. Uh, Russian hackers slipped up in an attempt to hack a senator. So this, this is a, a Democratic senator this time uh, from Missouri. And uh, it's kind of interesting how they were able to use some of the, the code to determine, or, or at least, I think, assume that uh, that this did, did originate in Russia. Yeah, you know, we wonder about that sometimes. Uh, in the security circles, they call it attribution, right? So when there's an attack, when there's a phishing attempt, who do you attribute it to? Who actually performed the attack? And a lot of times they just say North Korea and call it a day. Like, why, why bother researching when you just blame it on North Korea? But this one was really interesting because they explained exactly how they attributed it. And what happened was it was a phishing attempt, an email that went out to the, the senator and her staffers, and the idea was to get you to click a link and make it look like you were visiting, I believe it was a Microsoft page. Yeah, I think it was it? the Microsoft email um, login for 365. The problem was when you went to that Office 365 page, if you were just to go yourself, it detects what country you're in and it renders the page appropriately. It sets the language. And so there's a little flag at the bottom that indicates what language your browser is defaulting to. Well, the Russian hackers that crafted this email, they scraped that Microsoft page and brought up a fake server hosting it. Well, when they scraped it, it showed that they were Russian. It set it to the, the Russian language, and they then hosted it up. So now when these people in the U.S. clicked on the link, they went to a fake server that was showing the Microsoft page, but the language detected as Russian. So that was the, the key. Now, that doesn't attribute it to the Russian government. Like, we, we don't know if, if Vladimir Putin himself did this, right? <laughs> but it tells you that it was somebody who at least had a Russian IP when they scraped the page, set up the attack. So it's a great example, a chance to kind of see behind the curtains and understand how they're attributing this to a particular nation. And so obviously the the page itself that the staffer went to wasn't in Russian, but even if you translate the page, that you're saying that, that that little bit of code stays in the back end where you can see the, the what they say, the RU tag in yeah, this case? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there's plenty of services out there that default to English, even though they know you're in another country. Mm. And setting a different country code just changes, like, how it renders a currency symbol or, or the prices they display or whatever. And the rest of the page is still in English. So there, there's a lot of that. Um, and in this case, it just happened to identify it down at the bottom of the screen. Makes sense. Uh, all right, shifting gears now. Uh, we've got some Google news to talk about. So this one is over on Google's uh, own blog here about the uh, Google Cloud. Uh, deploy only what you trust. Introducing binary authorization for Google Kubernetes engines. It's, it's something we've talked a lot about with containers and sure. on cloud. But what's going on here? So when you build up a containerized application, you've got the application and you've got a very small operating system inside of that container, and you deploy. Well. Because the OS is small, a lot of people don't take the time to properly secure the container, and your container can get compromised. Well, if somebody compromised your container, what they want to be able to do is execute arbitrary code, code that they've written that they're able to push over and execute. With the new feature called binary authorization, they're not able to execute any binaries except the ones that you've specifically signed and authorized to execute inside of your container. So that means that if somebody compromises your container, they can run your authorized binaries, but they won't be able to run anything else. They won't be able to load their own tools or or drop their own executable in there. They won't be able to uh, even set up a fake one to run later on you when you get in there and run. Uh, it restricts the binaries that are allowed to execute. So you're able to lock it down. This is kind of like AppLocker. 
which is a Windows solution or app armor found in Linux, where you're specifically dictating these are the applications allowed to run. But it goes a step further, and the applications are signed. So you can't even tamper with one of the existing applications. It has to be the application in the state that you approved it in order to run it. So that makes it a very resilient container, and it makes it very secure. So it's a neat technology. Google just introduced it with its Kubernetes engine. We're going to see that rolling out to more and more Google solutions over the next few months. Yeah, and if you scroll down, Don, in, in the actual article, there's a, a cool little uh, animation there that runs that kind of shows, uh, I think, what you were talking about of, of uh, how the untrusted code uh, does get, get blocked there. Yeah, so in their, their CI, uh, CDs, their, their continuous integration and deployment, uh, they're pushing their approved binaries in. They hit the containers they're allowed to run. An attacker gets involved somehow in the middle, and when they push their stuff over, it's not signed. It's not authorized. It goes in. It's not able to execute. Now, you are still compromised. I guess you know that, that's worth pointing out. You're still compromised. Just the attacker couldn't do anything with it. So we need to be monitoring for this activity, but it is nice to have that protection. All right. Very interesting. Um, let's move over to an Ars Technica article now. Uh, Chrome 69, which I can't believe we're, we're that many versions by now, uh, <laughs> will take the next step in killing Flash, roll out a new design, which begs the question, is Flash still alive? Flash is still alive. Wow. Uh, and in fact, there's a native Flash player built into Chrome. There still will be in 69. Uh, if you go to a website that uses Flash, it won't load it by default. You get this uh, little kind of gray window, and it offers, if you click on it, to enable the plugin for that site. Now, in previous versions of Chrome, it would remember that setting. And every time you go back to that site, it'll remember, and it'll automatically load that Flash plugin. That behavior is changing in Chrome 69. Now, every time you close the browser and reopen it again, that prompt resets. And so you've got to authorize it every time you close the browser and go back to that site. So this is going to impact not end users so much, because most of us aren't having to interact with Flash sites very much, but businesses. If you're an enterprise and you have some kind of Flash application that's still in use or a site that leverages Flash on your intranet and you're using Chrome as your browser, starting with version 69, you're going to have to authorize that plugin to launch every time you go there. It's going to make things really inconvenient. And if it was a one-time thing, that's no big deal. But if you have an application, um, I'm trying to think of a good one uh, that we have. I know we have like the... Um, the control for home automation stuff where mm -hmm. it has some flash applications you can use to control your control for applications. Uh, if you had to go to that every day and yeah. so every day you're having to authorize that flash plugin, that's going to get pretty darned annoying pretty fast. And that's going to be, hopefully I'm, I'm sure what Google is hoping is the final kick in the butt to make people move away from flash. And so this was a conscious decision by Google to, hey, we're going to turn that off so that, that people will move to HTML five or whatever, uh, whatever way they can get that that same experience without using Flash. Yeah, and this has been a long time coming. They've started this process years ago. I think it was in 2016. Uh, Apple really started this ball rolling over 10 years ago when they said the iPhone won't support Flash. So this is this has been a long time coming, and it's, it's still not dead, though. There's still the native Flash player built into Chrome. You can still use it. You just have an extra authentication, not authentication, an extra authorization step you have to go through. It's not dead. It's just uh, DNR'd. That's right. Yeah. Not, did you. Do not resuscitate this. Uh, all right, sticking with Mac, uh, over on 9to5Mac, we have an article about Mojave. Uh, Mac OS Mojave drops back to my Mac iCloud feature, Apple Remote Desktop recommended. So what what is back to my Mac? All right, so back to my Mac says that if you have it turned on, like I, I believe I have it turned on on my laptop, 
that I could go to another Mac anywhere in the world. And as long as I was logged in with the same Apple ID, when I launch the Finder, I'll see my remote computer in the remote list. And if I choose it and click screen sharing, I'll be able to see the screen of that computer and work just like I was sitting beside it. It's a, it's a remote desktop application that's built into every Mac. And it works really well if you have two Macs or if you have one Mac and you're logging in on somebody else's with your Apple ID, which most people don't do. So that feature is pretty neat, but it requires servers at Apple's headquarters to work. How do you find this remote computer, especially if the remote computer is behind a firewall? You can't. So that remote computer phones home to Apple, and wherever you're at, you phone home to Apple. And through Apple, you're able to find the remote computer and get logged in and see the screen. So Apple's basically just saying, look, not a lot of people are using this software. We want to turn that server off, and so we're going to end Back to My Mac. Now, if you use Back to My Mac, it's still there and supported in Mac OS. Mojave's in beta. It hasn't actually come out of beta yet, but when it does, Back to My Mac will be gone. Apple mentions, hey, you should use Remote Desktop instead. What they don't mention is that Apple Remote Desktop is not designed for individual people. It's designed for companies. If you're managing a lot of Macs, I love it. Apple Remote Desktop lets you install software and pull logs and access a shell and view the screen of computers that you manage. All right. On a positive side, it does a lot of really cool stuff. On a negative side, it does cost $80 versus Back to My Mac, which was free. So Apple Remote Desktop does cost money. Uh, the other thing is you need user credentials to be able to connect remotely. And one of the nice things about Back to My Mac was I could go to any Mac, and as long as I logged in with my Apple ID, I could remote uh, and connect into my system using Back to My Mac. With Apple Remote Desktop, I would have to log in with my Apple ID, install ARD from the App Store, right? So now I'm installing apps under my Apple ID on somebody else's computer, and then be able to remote screen connect. Uh, it also requires you to open up firewall ports and so on. It's not a drop-in replacement. If I had to pick a drop-in replacement, it would be RealVNC. RealVNC has free accounts for up to five computers. And so you could install RealVNC on five of your systems. You can go anywhere in the world, fire up the RealVNC client, and connect right back and see the screen. Apple Remote Desktop and Back to My Mac all used VNC anyway. Same protocol. So you get the same experience and you don't have to shell out 80 bucks and, and all that. So uh, I would recommend Real VNC over Apple Remote Desktop. I use both products on a regular basis. ARD is great for businesses, but for individuals, definitely uh, definitely look into Real VNC. So is Real VNC free? Yeah. It is free. Okay. For up to five computers. If you want to go beyond that, you pay for it. So as an individual, that might be the way to go where yeah. in, a, in a corporate environment, maybe uh, go with a remote desktop, it sounds like. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right, that's pretty much it for our regular news. Now we've got kind of the ridiculous story that we like to end with each week, and this one's fantastic. Uh, this is coming to us on the NWF. Uh, so this is Northwest Florida, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, Florida man. Uh, <laughs> DailyNews.com. Uh, convenience store customer gets into brawl with cashier over a slow computer. So you've looked into this a little bit more. So lay the, the right. story here for there, us. There are so many things about this article that just made me laugh out loud. Uh, first off, this happened in Crestview, Florida, which is where I went to high school. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I used to live there. It's a bizarre town. Uh, and in, the, in, a, in a gas station, a lady was trying to check out, and the cash register, the, the computerized cash register system, was running really slow. Now, we've all experienced slow computers, 
and it stinks, right? Uh, I've gone to to stores where they had to reboot the system, and you have to wait a moment. It's annoying. This lady went absolutely ballistic. They ended up having to pepper spray the woman uh, and uh, and try and subdue her. She left. She came back. They had to call the police. She went absolutely crazy. Uh, I'm sure there's more to that story. Um, <laughs> but they have video footage of it, and it's just uh, amazing that this happened. Uh, the woman was charged with aggravated battery. Now, you might ask why I bring that up here. And the main reason is, let this be a lesson to you system administrators out there that you need to keep your computers running in the tip-top highest performance, or you need to start dispensing pepper spray with your computers to protect your end users. Really important. Yeah, and uh, (laughs) I'm I'm having a feeling that some sort of of narcotics or alcohol were involved because it says the woman left and returned multiple times, uh, (laughs) bringing multiple people back with her. But uh, she says she remembers being pepper sprayed and throwing things, but said it was because uh, the woman was being rude with her to start with. So she doesn't seem to remember everything that went on here. (laughs) I like that she was actually throwing things from the counter at the employee. So it's really for the the safety of your employees uh, that you need to to go ahead and maintain the computers. We're worried about attackers on the internet. The attackers are right here in our local gas yeah. stations and convenience stores. That's the ones not, you're not ready for. <laughs> Throwing five-hour energies at you uh, <laughs> as you're trying to restart the system is not what you need. All right, well, that's pretty much going to do it for us today. We do have a couple things to let you know about over at IT Pro TV. Uh, first of all, we've got some webinars coming up. Uh, again very soon we actually just did one today uh, that we've been talking to you about in the past about um, surviving a ddos attack and that's something that will actually be archived on here you can see at the bottom of that page we got recent webinars so we'll have that one up there very shortly uh, we do have one and that is about a das it's about das which is uh, something i hadn't really heard of before but desktop as a service and Well, if you haven't really heard of it before, Ronnie Wong is going to help walk you through exactly what that is and and how you can utilize DAS. So um, be sure to go over to itpro.tv slash webinars uh, to check that out, register for that. Uh, That'll be coming up uh, this next month in September. I think we're going to do two webinars. And also, if you uh, like what you see over at ITProTV, you might want to go ahead and subscribe. Um, Check out go.itpro.tv slash technado. We've got a special coupon code uh, for all of you listeners and viewers, uh, Technado30. Uh, you can use that at checkout, and you can save 30% off of your subscription. That's for the lifetime of your account. Uh, so it doesn't just uh, go that first time, but as you renew, um, you're always going to get that discount moving forward. So that's definitely something you should check out. Uh, also, go ahead and like us, uh, share, subscribe, tell all your friends uh, that you're enjoying that Technado uh, each week. And Don, anything else to add before we... Before we leave, yeah. just remember that uh, TechNado is powered by two things. One is social media adoration, so likes, thumbs ups, and all that. And then the other thing is money. So uh, yeah. any any time you spend money with IT Pro TV, you are helping the podcast. So absolutely do that if you can. Uh, you know, and uh, if you're out there in the social media world and you see articles, things that are exciting to you, be sure to tweet them, send them over to us. Let us know. We we love to kind of chit chat on different topics. But uh, I think that's about all we've got for this week. Yeah, and, and TechNet is also powered by 5-Hour Energy uh, <laughs> as well. But, uh, yeah, especially those crazy articles. If you see those, please, uh, please send those in, and uh, <laughs> we'd love to check those out as well. But that'll have to wait till next week, so we'll see you then. Thanks so much for watching.